Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and the author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. As Alex, uh, welcome back. It's great to be back, Tom. And today we're going to talk about ESG investing. And I'm really excited to be recording this episode with you because there's really so much going on in this whole area and so much to talk about. And it's worth pointing out that as well as your academic work in this area, um, you also serve on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee for Royal London Asset Management. And so you see how this stuff really works in practice. And I guess it's also worth pointing out that we're recording this shortly after Tarek Fancy, the former CIO for Sustainable Investments at BlackRock, fired a broadside at his uh, former industry, accusing ESG investing of being a dangerous placebo that achieves nothing other than making money for the asset management industry. So we'll certainly kind of come back to see what you've got to say about what Tarek Fancy thinks of ESG investing. But to start off, In your mind, what is ESG investing? So ESG investing is the incorporation of environmental, social and governance principles into the investment process. And so there's two ways in which you can incorporate it. One is stock selection. So which stocks to own and which stocks to avoid to begin with. And the second is having decided which stocks to own activism, so to engage with companies to improve those ESG dimensions. So let me go through these things in turn. So in terms of stock selection, perhaps the simplest and the bluntest approach to ESG investing is to have exclusion criteria. So we might choose to exclude a company if it fails on some particular ESG red lines. So that might be if the board is not sufficiently diverse or of the CEO to work, a pay ratio is above a certain level, or if the company is in a particular sin industry like alcohol or tobacco or uh, fossil fuels, then we might choose to completely ignore it. So that's perhaps the bluntest and starkest idea of ESG investing. Now, the more modern approach to ESG is what's known as integration, which is considering ESG factors alongside financial factors in your investment decision. So historically, you might have analysed a company's balance sheet strength and sales growth and market share. Now, to that, you're now going to be adding other factors such as corporate culture, such as environmental track record, such as customer loyalty. So it's broadening the set of criteria that you're using to form your investment decision. Now, if a company performs poorly on something like corporate culture, you're not automatically going to exclude it. But it is just going to be one factor that enters the decision set. And that, to me, is, I think, the best way of practicing ESG investing. It's not to be so blunt as to be a red line that you can't cross, but it's just broadening the set of information so that you're making a more informed investment decision. So this this is really interesting, isn't it? Because actually one of the sort of shock horror stories that often appears in the press is that some sort of ESG fund still invests in, in oil companies or still invests in tobacco companies. But actually what you're saying is that it's perfectly legitimate for an ESG fund to do that, providing they're taking that, you know, oil companies' progress towards decarbonisation or energy transition into account when deciding how much of it to hold. 
That's absolutely correct. And I think that's correct regardless of whether you're practicing stock selection or practicing activism. So what is the reason for incorporating ESG into stock selection? It's that you typically believe that these ESG factors are financially material and going to improve long-term shelled returns. So it could be that a company is in the fossil fuel industry, which you might think is generally negative, for long-term shareholder returns because it's a dying industry. But if the company is decarbonizing, as you say, Tom, or if the company does well on many other factors, such as having great employee engagement, a really credible management team, it could still be a great investment from a financial perspective. It should not be that one single factor torpedoes the investment case. And then the second part of ESG investing, as I refer to, was activism. So changing the ESG profile of a company and that could be for two reasons. First, you could be changing it because you do believe it will increase the long-term value of your shares. Or the second reason could be because you have non-financial objectives. As an investor, you want the companies that you are holding not only to deliver financial performance, but also social performance. And from that perspective, even if your goal is purely non-financial, or at least partly non-financial, you would still not want to completely exclude fossil fuel companies. Because to engage with such a company, you need to have a seat in the table. So recently, there was a lot made out of engine number one, who got three directors elected to the Exxon board. And these are directors who are going to care passionately about climate change. But the only reason they were able to do that was by owning some shares in the company and therefore having some votes. So this idea of you can't be a true ESG investor if you are holding a problematic company, that's just like saying you can't be a true doctor, if you're dealing with a sick patient, you should only deal with, with healthy patients. That's not the role of a doctor and it's not the role of an activist investor either. Other different types of engagement, Alex? I mean, you've taken an example there of sort of quite an activist campaign approach, but are, are there other forms of engagement that are relevant to this discussion on ESG investing? Yeah, so broadly speaking, there's two types of engagement. So one of them could be what's known as generalized engagement, where you take a general issue and you apply that issue across a large number of companies. And why I'm calling it generalized is that you don't really need to tailor it to a company's specifics. For example, it could be that you're pushing towards longer term pay schemes. That's something you and I have done work on because they typically improve long term behavior. And there are organizations like the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance, which will try to spread that out across a lot of companies. That's a G factor. Maybe for ENS factors, they might try to do things such as change the diversity of the workforce or reduce a company's carbon footprint. That you can practice at most companies. But the second type of engagement is specialized engagement. And so that is something which is bottom up, that is tailored to the specifics of a company's situation. So one example is in the UK. The Investor Forum, which is a consortium of investors which do want to take specialised engagement and practice it, they were involved with Sports Direct, which was a company which has some poor workplace practices, and it needed to really understand what were the problems with its workplace practices and how to address that. And it is really important to recognise these two different types of engagement. Because again, it's really easy to say, well, if you're an investor and you're touching 100 companies with your generalized engagement, you're having more of an impact. 
But actually, in some cases, you do want to focus on a couple of companies and really get to understand their issues and engage in a focused way with those particular companies. So there's role for both of them. We should not think in a black and white manner that the more companies you touch, the better, because in some cases, the solution that you want to pursue is one that requires a deep understanding of that particular company's ESG issues. And I guess we've also seen sort of more broadly in the activism literature, there's evidence, isn't there, that when an activist sort of engages with one company in an industry, there are sort of spillover effects on the behaviours of other companies in that industry. And, you know, we've certainly seen that in the oil sector with one or two of the other oil majors sort of engaging proactively with engine number one to make sure they, they don't get Exxon, as, as it were. So um, I guess there are those positive spillover effects as well, aren't there? Absolutely. And that has been studied with academic research. So there's a paper titled Governance Under the Gun, which is the lead article in the Review of Finance a couple of years ago, which does exactly what it says on the tin, right? If you're under the gun because you've seen your rivals in that industry be targeted by an activist fund, you better sort out your ESG issues. Otherwise, you'll be targeted yourself. And so they use some really clever methods to distinguish correlation from causation. And they find that a hedge fund targeting one firm within that industry causes some positive spillover effects on, on other companies. And I think that's really interesting because in general, activism has pretty bad press, right? Because people think it's always about the short term. We covered in a prior Grow the Pie podcast episode, the fact that it typically actually improves long-term performance in that firm in question. And then what's really interesting more recently is there's now some spillover research looking at the effects on the industry in general. You might think, well, do other companies have to be really short-termist and inflate short-term stock prices to stop new activists coming in? It's in fact the opposite. They're improving the fundamental productivity and ESG issues, which led to the targeting in the first place. So, so far, we've talked about sort of ESG investing through the lens of excluding certain types of company. And then we've talked about it through the lens of engaging with companies. And, and there are two ways of doing that. One, the more sort of company specific activist approach and one, the more generalized approach that um, index funds and the like might um, might participate in. And another form of ESG investing that's that's commonly marketed to retail investors is, is so-called impact investing, which can take on a large number of guises, including just, for example, clean energy funds and things like that. How, how do you see that fitting into the universe of, of ESG investing? So we'll first start with what impact investing claims to do. And what it claims to do is to change the companies that um, you're investing in. So the whole idea is that if we're a clean energy fund, we are providing new capital to clean energy firms to enable them to develop, let's say, wind-based um, energy. And similarly, we're going to divest from fossil fuel companies. We're going to deprive them of capital. However, this is one of the cases in which I, I fully agree with Tarek Fancy's criticisms, is that it's actually really difficult for a public markets investor to have impact, because when you are trading your shares, you don't actually provide a company with new capital. So if I'm going to be investing in a clean energy company, the only way I can buy shares is if somebody sells their shares to me. So I'm not actually providing them with new capital. Similarly, if I'm going to be divesting from a fossil fuel company, I'm not depriving them of capital. I can only sell if somebody else buys. So Mr. Fancy uses the analogy of a basketball team. 
and it could be that you and I both hold shares in a basketball player. Now, if that player starts fouling, maybe we want to sell our shares in him, but somebody else buys the shares, the guy just still stays on the court and still plays as dirty as he did before, we're not really having any impact. So I do think it is difficult for a public markets investor to have an impact just by buying and selling companies. The real way that you're going to be doing that is to engage with companies, as we've just discussed. But that does require you either to have a large stake in the company to be able to undertake um, specialized engagement, or it requires you to undertake generalized engagement. But it, you must be clear that there is a lot of evidence that the form of generalized engagement that you are undertaking is going to be improving performance. Now, there's this common view that every ESG dimension does improve long-term shelled returns, but actually the evidence is much more nuanced than that. Only certain dimensions do pay off. I think what this last sort of five or so minutes has, has demonstrated is that ESG investing is not a simple issue. Uh, it's not a black and white issue. There are lots of shades of grey. And yet a sort of concern I have is that, you know, these funds are sort of being marketed to the public in a way that, that, that doesn't necessarily discriminate. And so whilst institutional investors like Ben Yeo might be well capable of dealing with all of this nuance, it's, it's much, much more difficult for... Uh, for personal uh, investors. Do, do, do you think that the investment industry could be doing more to make these different approaches clear? I think it absolutely needs to be doing more. And so it's so easy to give a blanket statement about ESG, such as ESG always pays off for ESG never pays off. But I think that's as misleading as saying food is good for you, or food is bad for you, right? It depends on the type of food. Broccoli might have a different effect on you than, than chocolate. And so it is really important to understand the shades of grey. Certain dimensions succeed and others don't. But there have been um, players within the investment industry who have made blanket claims, and those blanket claims are, are, are quite appealing. So my own broker, Hargreaves Lansdowne, who I've been with for um, over 20 years, I've got no problem with them generally, but they did send out an email to all clients saying study after study shows that ESG will always outperform when the evidence is much more mixed on that. But just to make that claim, will be persuasive because then investors are willing to then put their money into ESG funds. And because ESG funds need to go through the effort of analysing a company's ESG credentials, they're typically more expensive. And so what you might end up doing is just encouraging your own clients to be putting their money into higher fee products. So this is where I do think regulators should step in to try to scrutinise the claims that are made about ESG. So I think that brings us really nicely on to kind of the next part of this discussion, where I'd like to talk about whether ESG investing works. And I'd like to discuss that from two angles. First of all, just explore these claims about whether ESG investing leads to outperformance for the end investor. But then also later on, come back to the question about whether ESG investing actually kind of changes ESG outcomes in the real world. So, so let's just start with this ESG investing outperformance claim and you just referenced that your broker had sent you an email saying that study after study kind of proves this. I mean, I have to say, when I look at the various reports on this, I think you could forgive people for being confused because, you know, on the one hand, we've had a group of researchers from NYU Stern and, and Rockefeller Asset Management doing a study saying that across a thousand studies there's broad support for, for ESG outperformance. On the other hand, Scientific Beta 
an, an academically connected investment house recently came out with a study saying actually there's not really any ESG outperformance that we can find. And and at the other extreme, you've got the famous sort of Hong and Kasparovich um, sin stock study that said that ESG underperformed. So um, perhaps you could just help us pick through these studies, what they say, and, and then we'll come on to what we think is really true in this whole difficult area. Thanks, Tom. I think this is the, the, the critical question. I think before I give my specific answers, I think it's important to just to highlight the biases which lead to some of these misleading claims going through. So one of the most um, important biases here is confirmation bias, where you will have your preconceived idea of ESG. So there's some people who are predisposed to believing that ESG pays off. And therefore, any study that comes out and says this, you will naturally want to um, listen to. So when the NYU and Rockefeller study came out, there were people on my on their Twitter feeds and LinkedIn just saying how amazing the study was, perhaps without even reading the study. And then when the scientific beta study came out, which argued that ESG does not pay off, they immediately criticised it, again, without reading the arguments that they were making. So I think we, including me, because I'm obviously somebody who's predisposed towards ESG, need to make sure that when we look at a study, we don't assess it by whether we like the conclusion, but the rigour of the methodology. Then if I go to the actual answer as to what is the evidence, the inconvenient truth is that the evidence is much more favourable on the G rather than the E and the S. Nowadays, it's the E and the S which gets a lot of attention, but actually the evidence is, is strongest on governance. So there are some studies which show that stronger shareholder rights is typically correlated with long-term performance. There's a very famous study published in 2003 by Gompus, Ishi, and Metric showing that. And then there's other facets of governance, such as board independence, board size, overboarding, which also finds links to shareholder value. So smaller boards, more independent boards, and boards where directors are not overboarded are typically linked to better performance. Now let's move to the S, the social dimensions. And here it is more mixed. So my um, paper on this, which was published in 2011 and why I got really interested in ESG when it was still a niche topic, shows that companies that treat their work as well do better in the long term. So I studied between 1984 and 2011, and I found that companies with high employee satisfaction beat their peers by 23 to 3.8% per year in shareholder return, that's 89 to 184% compounded. Now, one of the pushbacks that I might get about it was, well, that study was published 10 years ago, so is it relevant still today? Because nowadays people should know about that result and they should erode the alpha because everybody should be piling onto this. What's interesting is just two weeks ago, I was sent um, a replication of my paper by some scholars who replicated it through to 2020, and they found that the results still held. And that's surprising because the study's been out there for, for 10 years, but for some reason, people haven't been fully exploiting it. And it might be because they're looking at maybe incorrect dimensions of the S, maybe things like pay ratios, rather than the qualitative dimensions of employee satisfaction, which my study looks at. I just sort of pause you there, actually, Alex. I, I mean, I think there's, there's a really, really important point here, which I just want to dig into, which is about, you know, what the nature of outperformance on some of these 
dimensions might be. So you mentioned the, kind of the Gompers' work on corporate governance. Uh, and as I understand it, when Bebchuk and co-authors re-looked at that, I think from sort of 2010 onwards, actually the governance effect in terms of shareholder returns appeared to have fallen away, not, not, not in terms of underlying performance, but what seemed to have happened was that, you know, Gompers had identified an effect that wasn't widely seen by the market and therefore governance was undervalued. But once people got their heads around it and saw it, it got priced in and therefore the outperformance sort of disappeared. Whereas by contrast, what's sort of slightly surprising about your own work on employee engagement is that that process doesn't seem to be happening. How does that relate to sort of broader ESG factors and how that might relate to sort of short-term versus long-term outperformance? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting here because you might think, well, why did I even publish the study to begin with? I should have kept it to myself and piled all my money into it. And I actually, um, I, I did put my money into a fund run by Panassas, which um, does exploit employee well-being. But actually, that fund is continuing to outperform despite my study being out there. And why is that? Why hasn't there not been the learning by the market? particularly in an era in which ESG is really popular, I think it's because people might be focusing on the wrong dimensions of ESG, potentially being swayed by some of the very popular, but not so rigorous research saying, well, let's invest in things such as pay ratios or things like um, frequency of employee turnover when they're not actually looking at the deeper, more fundamental dimensions of employee engagement, such as credibility, respect, pride and camaraderie, which is what my study looks at. So I think this is why I, I think ESG investing is, is, is so complex and so multicolored is that certain factors might work and certain ones might not. And the ones that do work might continue to persist in working because they might not be as sort of popular or easy to implement as the factors that a lot of people are trumpeting. And I think um, one other thing that's interesting when we look at the, the um, E and the S is the importance of materiality. So there was another paper in 2016 which found that ES issues are only linked to long-term performance if they are material for that company's business model. For example, climate change we think is a really important topic. Both of us view this as being really fundamental to the future of humanity. However, it is not actually important for every company. For example, if you're in the tech industry, maybe the most material stakeholder issues are things like data security and privacy and cyber addiction and so on. And what the evidence suggests is it's only the material stakeholder dimensions that matter. And I think this is relevant for the two things we mentioned right at the start of this podcast, right? For stock selection, you don't necessarily want to always look at a company's carbon footprint or climate change impact because it might not be material for that industry. And second, in terms of activism, if you're going to be engaging with a company to improve its ESG, there are limitations to this generalized activism approach because it might not be that this ESG issue, be it carbon footprint, should be something that you've been rolling out to every company, because for some companies, it might be a distraction rather than actually central. So, and I, I guess another thing that this illustrates as well is that um, I mean, you, you referred to the, the, to the research on kind of materiality and the importance of the link between materiality and investor returns. But again, 
those material factors, it is quite credible that in some cases, those will become recognized by the market and then priced in. And so, you know, the old adage about past performance being no guide to future performance kind of really holds true here, doesn't it? In that there are, it's quite plausible that for a number of ESG issues, we've been through a period where they've become more prominent in investor thinking. Investors have started taking notice of these issues, which they've previously ignored, but that then actually they have subsequently become fully priced in and therefore won't lead to outperformance in the future. Is there any way to sort of unpick these issues as to which things might be persistent and which things could simply be a repricing? Yes, I think so. So so when you look at other dimensions of a company which have been linked to long-term performance, they typically do go away after publication. So there's a very famous paper entitled does academic research destroy stock return predictability, which won the best paper award in the Journal of Finance a few years ago, which typically does find an erosion. So once papers get published, people trade on that. However, those were purely financial factors, and the investors that are using those factors are purely financially motivated. So they are now able to use things like size or valuation ratios or profitability as characteristics to form a portfolio. Now, the challenge with ESG is that actually some investors might have some non-financial motives, and so they might take ESG factors into account even if they are not material and even if they're not going to lead to long-term financial performance. So why might they do that? First, might be ignorance, actually, because there are so many claims that ESG always pays off, And there's such strong confirmation bias that it might be that you're an investor who sort of wants to improve shelled returns, but you accidentally use some immaterial factors because you believe the research shows that ESG is much more unambiguous than it actually is. And the second is maybe your goal is not to maximize shareholder value to begin with. Maybe your goal is to maximize fund flows particularly given for some investors, particularly at index funds, the most of what determines your fee income is the size of your assets under management rather than the performance, you might want to say, well, we're going to be engaging on some of these ESG issues because your end investors care about them, like a pension fund might care about labor rights or climate change. And so if you are taking these factors into account rather than the material factors, then they will not necessarily be priced into the market. And then just moving back to kind of some of the more financial factors, um, one of the things I wanted to unpick with you, which which seems to be at the root of quite a few kind of misinterpretations of this sort of ESG performance data, is the relationship between ESG companies and kind of well-known drivers of returns. So, you know, we have these multi-factor models that, you know, seek to explain returns going beyond just sort of straightforward market beta, but looking at things like value, size, quality, momentum, and so on and so forth. And one of the sort of contentions of the scientific beta study, as I understand it, was that actually a lot of outperformance that has been attributed to ESG is in fact arising because those companies that score highly on ESG criteria, you know, often reflect characteristics of factors that have that have done particularly well. And that actually, once you take that into account, the outperformance goes away. And as I understand it, that's also been sort of leveled at the work on sin stocks by Hong and Kaspersit. So is it true to say that a lot of this stuff can actually be explained by fundamental factors rather than ESG? It actually can for, for many dimensions of ESG performance. So we know the phrase correlation does not imply causation, but 
when it's a correlation we like, we sort of forget about it and interpret it as causation. So if you find that ESG companies outperform, you immediately will attribute it to their ESG performance when it could be that they differ from other companies on other dimensions. And I think a really striking example of this was in the COVID pandemic, where you saw ESG portfolios really outperform. But those ESG companies just happened to be in the tech sector and low ESG companies were in the energy sector. And obviously, given the move towards the virtual world, energy had lower demand and, and tech had higher demand. So it wasn't anything really to do with ESG. And so I think the scientific beta study made a really important point, which is in order to claim there is ESG alpha, we need to control for all the other factors that might be driving returns, such as the size of a company. We know that smaller stocks typically do better, such as recent performance of a company. We know that momentum stocks typically do better. Now, even though I think there was a lot to the scientific beta study, I do feel they overgeneralized their conclusions. What they did is they picked apart five studies and showed that all five studies go away when you control for those other factors. And then their conclusion was there is no ESG alpha. Well, in fact, they'd only picked apart five studies. That doesn't say anything about the hundreds of other studies which are out there. And in particular, the five studies that they had picked apart were not even published in any academic journal. So that's why throughout this podcast series, we've highlighted the importance of taking papers published in the most stringent academic journals. So when I published my paper in Employee Satisfaction, the editor and the referees made me go through purgatory in order to convince them I had to control for every single factor out there. And and as I mentioned, it was published in 2011. And since then, new factors have come up which need to be controlled for, and there's new risk models. And what was interesting about this replication, which just came out, was not only did they update it to 2020, but they also threw the most sophisticated new risk models and new factors like profitability and quality, and they still found that it survived. So I do think there are some ESG dimensions that are robust to the very valid critique that the scientific beta authors did highlight. Interesting. And, and, and actually, that point that you've made around kind of quality of study is perhaps a point worth making in relation to the kind of um, study count analyses of the type that the NYU Stern team undertook, which is that, you know, if you do a kind of a, a count of a thousand studies and sort of toss up which falls on which side, that's not so meaningful unless you're controlling for the quality of those studies, particularly when you take into account the fact that there's a strong incentive to produce studies with a certain predetermined outcomes. So just to come on to the, to the other side of this, I mean, could it be the case, as is made by some authors, that actually we could get into a situation where ESG proves so popular and there are so many people who want to invest for non-financial factors that actually ESG funds could get bid up so much that they end up underperforming? Is that a credible proposition? Is there any evidence that that's happening yet? Yes, I think this is a really important question is that we could get into an ESG bubble, just like previously you got into a tech bubble. So if indeed people now think ESG will always lead to outperformance, they could be piling on to companies in order to improve their ESG scores. 
and that could lead to them overpricing companies that do well on certain ESG metrics. And indeed, there is a, a paper co-authored by Nick Ganshev, who wrote that governance under gun paper that I referred to earlier, with his two collaborators, Mary Sunter Giannetti and Rachel Lee. And what they indeed find is that after Morningstar introduced sustainability ratings, where they're rating funds by the average ESG scores of the companies that that fund holds, then those funds started to buy into high ESG companies in order to improve their fund rating. And what that led to is those companies being overpriced and therefore underperforming going forward. So again, I think this is really important. We need to understand that actually, when we think about ESG, we need to still take valuation into account, which if we go back to the approaches to ESG that I mentioned in my initial answer, the whole idea of including or excluding a stock based on its ESG criterion is just far too blunt. Right? If ESG matters, it must matter in terms of affecting valuation, but therefore we cannot divorce a discussion of a company's ESG from its current valuation. Maybe a company has great employee satisfaction, but that doesn't mean that we should necessarily invest in it, despite my paper, because maybe it's already priced in, so we need to look at the current valuation. Maybe a company has poor employee satisfaction, but the valuation is so depressed that after taking it into account, it is actually still a good investment. And therefore, when we want to integrate ESG, we need to integrate it alongside financial factors rather than looking at it in isolation. And there's a connected point here, Alex, isn't there, which is uh, quite often you see studies claiming that at the same time, ESG funds have outperformed, but also they sort of responded better in a crisis, which seems to suggest that these are higher returning funds with, with lower risk. Those two things sound a little bit contradictory to me. I mean, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so often ESG advocates try to have their cake and eat it. They'll say two contradictory things. So one claim commonly is that good ESG reduces the cost of capital. Why? Because if you are a good ESG company, then investors will pile into your stock. And because they'll pile into your stock, then you don't need to offer them as high returns for issuing equity. So that reduces the cost of capital. But in the flip side, right, if ESG people pile into your stock and then you can offer them lower returns, then actually an ESG strategy gives you lower returns. And that's in contrast to the common claim that ESG leads to outperformance for shareholders. So these two things are two sides of the same coin, right? The return that you get as a shareholder is the cost of capital to the company. And so if ESG is good for the shareholder, it's probably not actually good for the company and vice versa. So you can't both simultaneously claim that uh, ESG reduces a company's cost of capital because it can offer lower returns to its investors. And simultaneously, ESG gives higher returns to investors unless the market happens to be out of equilibrium for a very long period of time. So what I'm hearing in this section about whether ESG investing outperforms is sort of any blanket statement that ESG investing outperforms just doesn't make any sense. And then indeed, many such statements turn out to be driven by you know, either sector factors or, or, or other sort of factors that are well-known drivers of returns. But on the other hand, you're not saying that there's no prospect of outperformance through ESG investing, because actually in certain dimensions, and you've referenced particularly the employment engagement study that you did yourself, in certain dimensions, ESG adds sort of important incremental 
information. But but that's a slightly more modest claim, isn't it, than some of the industry claims that we see? It is. And it's unfortunately not a claim which is going to be tweeted and liked and shared with loads of people. <laughs> so if you say a blunt claim that ESG always outperforms, then you're going to be shared by people who like that approach. And if you claim that ESG completely is a load of rubbish, then you're going to be shared by a lot of ESG skeptics. But I think just like most things in life, the world is not black and white. There are a lot of shades of grey. And so I would just encourage listeners, right, just to pay more attention to any more nuanced perspective, because that's likely to be be closer to the truth than something which says one way or the other. I mentioned confirmation bias earlier as one big psychological tendency we have. Another bias is known as black or white thinking, where we like to classify things as being either good or bad. So that's why, say, the Atkins diet became so popular, right, just to claim that carbohydrates are bad is much easier to implement than saying they're good in moderation. And so anything which teens tends to be binary, one way or the other, gets a lot of attention, even if the world is not binary. Well, I think after this podcast, I'm going to tweet that ESG investing works a little bit some of the time and, and see how many likes and reshares <laughs> I get for that. Probably not very many. Now I'd like to move on to sort of the other sort of side of ESG investing. And so people want to invest in ESG to, to feel that their money is making the world a better place. And so what I'd like to discuss with you now is, is whether there's any evidence that this is the case or, or are they actually just incurring higher fees with, with no certainty of either better performance, as we've just discussed, or positive impact. Indeed, I mean, Tarek Fancy, who was the former CIO for sustainable investing at BlackRock in his sort of diatribe against the industry, you know, essentially called ESG investing a dangerous placebo because we think it's doing good, but actually it isn't and is distracting from what we should be doing. But, but what does the rigorous evidence have to say about how ESG investing actually affects end outcomes in terms of what the investee companies do? Thanks. The ESG investing evidence shows that actually the second type of investing that I mentioned at the start, activism, does create value for both shareholders and society in a number of cases. So there are some types of activism, which is actually based on long-term profit. That is the main motive. But in order to improve profit for the long term, you do need to improve ESG outcomes. So we discussed in a prior podcast how hedge fund activism, which does want to make money in the long term, actually all ends up improving things such as innovation and labor productivity, because that's what you need to do to improve a company's performance for the long term. And in contrast, there's also other types of research which looks at ESG activism in particular, which is activism to improve a company's ESG performance, but it ends up also improving shelled returns. One of the most famous papers is by Dimson, Caracas and Lee on that topic. So this is consistent with the pie growing mentality, which is the theme of all of these podcasts, is that in the long term, actions that you take to improve the returns to shareholders do improve society and also vice versa. And I think this is one of the big limitations behind Fancy's analogy. So as I mentioned earlier, I do think there is much to like and to agree with about his paper, even though you might think as an ESG advocate, I should be predisposed not to like about it. But the basketball analogy that he uses throughout, which is useful in some cases, like highlighting the limitations of, of divestment, is unfortunately limited because it assumes a zero-sum game. So basketball is inherently zero-sum because if one team wins, the other team loses. And so this is why he says, well, you can't leave it 
to a basketball team to engage in sportsmanship because sportsmanship will reduce the chance of it winning. So you need to have referees do that. You can't just have basketball teams writing nice purpose statements saying we're going to play fair. But that doesn't translate to business, which is a positive sum game. So here, the analogy is not so much to a company as its rivals as to a company and its stakeholders. And the equivalent of sportsmanship to your stakeholders is treating them well. For example, being sporting to your employees by giving them meaningful work and skills development and fair pay. And if you go back to my paper on employee satisfaction, the evidence shows that that does grow the pie and it does improve shareholder outcomes as well as stakeholder outcomes. So that does mean that if you're an ESG investor and what you're doing is engaging within a company in order to improve its labor relations, like the investor forum did within Sports Direct, that is something that can indeed achieve impact. So it goes back to, are these claims valid? It's what are the claims to begin with? If the investor is saying, we're just going to be allocating capital away from fossil fuel companies towards green companies, Mr. Fancy is probably right. There's not much impact that you can have. But if they're saying, well, engagement is a core part of our strategy, then that is something that does actually have the potential to create value. The evidence does show it creates value, but engagement is, is almost never mentioned in his essay, which focuses mainly on capital allocation. So you, you've really highlighted engagement as a, as a key theme that's important. And, and actually, that's something that's just for the amateur retail investor, that's something well worth noting, because actually, you can through looking at a company's stewardship reports, find out what issues it's engaging on, you can get a sense of how effective that engagement is. But you have mentioned there that sort of divestment doesn't really work in terms of affecting what companies do. Could you just expand on why you say that? You know, because surely boards and companies are very fearful of shareholders selling out and share prices falling. So so, so why wouldn't an oil company be terrified that a BlackRock sustainable investment fund was going to exclude them? Yeah, this is interesting and nuanced. So there's two types of divestment which might work. And so one is blanket divestment, where you're going to completely exclude any company in the fossil fuel industry. Now, the only channel through which that could work is by changing the cost of capital. So that is the idea that, yes, if I sell, somebody else has to buy. So I'm not depriving the company of capital right now. But theoretically, it's possible that by doing that, I'm driving down the stock price. And so if in the future, the oil company needs to raise more money through a seasoned equity issuance, it can't raise as much because the stock price is lower. But that's not a powerful channel. Why? Because oil companies are really flush with cash, right? Indeed, if you are in an old economy industry, which a lot of these brown stocks are, you don't have great investment opportunities. So it's not really clear that they'll be needing to raise a lot of capital in the future. And also, it assumes away arbitrage, right? There's a lot of other investors that might be quite happy to be holding brown stocks. So even if I was to sell and drive the stock price down, somebody else might see this mispricing and buy and the stock price goes back to the new level. So it's, so it's very different from sort of a consumer boycott, isn't it? Where if 10% of the company's customers boycott them, they've just lost 10%. Whereas actually in investment markets, secondary investment markets, there are other investors who step in and buy the stock instead. 
Yeah, I think that's a really powerful observation because often we think that if as an investor boycotts a stock, that's as powerful as a customer boycotting a stock. But if you're a customer, you walk away, they might not be replacing your custom. Whereas within a company, you can only sell if somebody else buys. Now, the second form of divestment, which I think is more powerful, is what's known as tilting. And so what tilting involves is that you might underweight a certain sector, let's say the fossil fuel sector. However, you are still willing to hold a fossil fuel company if they are best in class. As we mentioned at the start, you might be a company that is really got a clear decarbonisation plan and is putting it into practice. And so why is that so powerful? Interestingly, that is powerful even if the company does not intend to raise any more capital. Why? Even if you're not intending to raise any more capital, as a CEO, you do care about the stock price. Your, your pay, your reputation is tied to the stock price and so on. Now, if indeed I know that by being best in class, I can avoid this investor selling and driving down the stock price, I now have huge incentives to be in best in class to be one of the few fossil fuel stocks that this green investor is willing to hold. Whereas the blanket divestment, which says, I'm going to divest from you, regardless of how good you are, every fossil fuel company gets sold. Well, then there's few incentives to do a good job to avoid being sold because everybody gets sold regardless. So again, it's the grey approach rather than the black and white approach, which is more powerful. Actually, to be a tilter as an investor, you are more likely to affect change within a company because it means that there is now an incentive to ensure that you're best in class, even if you're in a difficult industry. And similarly, on the flip side, right, there might be some other industries like healthcare, which ESG investors tend to overweight. You might think as the CEO, oh, I'm in the healthcare sector, I'm going to be held by this ESG company regardless. But if you are still willing to underweight the worst healthcare companies, then this is going to help keep you on your toes and mean that as a healthcare executive, you can't just rest in your laurels and ride on the fact that you're in the healthcare sector. So this is really fascinating. So if I was to sort of summarise what's come out of this in terms of advice for a, a retail investor, well, or even an institutional investor, but particularly I think retail investors really struggle with this stuff. The sort of ESG strategies that are most likely to produce real world outcomes are, well, engagement is key. So understanding the engagement philosophy of the fund that you're involved in, but actually also avoiding the sort of black and white extremes of either divestment at one end or purely investing in one sector, such as clean energy at the other end, that's unlikely to change underlying investment activity. But engagement and tilting are the approaches that you're saying are actually most likely to have some kind of real world outcome. Have I, have I got that broadly right? Yeah, you've got that absolutely right. And what is worrying is that's actually not the way that many investors think. So if you think about, say, some universities, they've had a students or, or pressure groups which picketing their lawns saying, well, how can you be holding any fossil fuel companies when actually it could be responsible to hold some fossil fuel companies if they were indeed best in class? So that approach would only work if indeed they'd analysed the fossil fuel company and saying, well, you're actually not holding a best in class one, but you need to do that analysis before condemning a particular investor's responsible investing strategy. And, and I think it's perhaps just worth pointing out as a footnote to end this part of the discussion, actually, if you're at either of those extremes of exclusion or very narrow sector investing, you're going to be losing some significant diversification benefits as, a, as an individual investor. So there could be costs there as well. 
So what I'd just like to finish off with, um, Alex, how do you as an expert in this field think about ESG investing from a personal perspective, if you're prepared to share some thoughts on that? Yes, really happy to share that, Tom. So I do believe in the power of ESG investing. I do believe in the insights that we glean from academic research. And so I try and invest in that on my own personal portfolio. So when when I released the first version of my employee satisfaction paper in 2007, I was lucky to win the Moskowitz Prize for Responsible Investing. That came with a monetary amount, and I put the entire amount in the Parnassus Workplace Fund, which is a fund based on employee well-being. And then I've been adding to that pretty much every year. And so that's a large chunk of my personal portfolio. And it has done really well um, over the past 14 or so years. In addition to that, as you mentioned, I'm on the Responsible Investment Committee for Royal London Asset Management. I own the Royal London Sustainable World Fund because I do believe that our approach to ESG investing is nuanced. It does take into account the shades of grey we've discussed, but it's not just that company or my particular study. I'm also a big investor in Bailey Gifford's Positive Change Fund. Again, I know some of the people there and I know their approach to responsible investing, which is something I'm, I'm quite aligned with. So what I do think it is possible to do is to cut through the noise and to look at how particular investors are implementing responsibility. This might be clear in their voting record or stewardship and engagement record and so on. And so you can find some investors who do see ESG investing as a way of improving long-term returns and in some cases also changing company performance. But we also need to make sure that they're not making claims that are not backed up by either the data or the academic research. Well, Alex, we've covered a a lot today and I should remind listeners that actually there's much more in your book and you can access that and a whole load of other great related resources and blogs and articles at um, your website, growthepie.net. In the meantime, do subscribe so that you can receive all the episodes in this podcast series And also do find out more about insights from London Business School at www.london.edu forward slash think. And thank you very much for listening. And thanks to you, Alex. Thanks very much, Tom.